Thank you for tuning in to the best parenting show on the internet. Post Daily Dose. You're not here to hear me. You're here to hear this great, great public speaker and great mind. One of our great minds of the time. And, and please believe me, we can never afford to have him here. So I'm glad he's my friend. <laughs> here you go. Brian Post. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Uh, I do love that guy. He's such a character. You don't meet very many just original people, and Pat is an original. I always say Pat O'Brien's an original. Um, is this, yeah, okay. So how many of you are foster parents? Joanne's okay. Adoptive parents? Okay, kinship parents? And then just biological parents? Okay, good. Um, I've been doing this for 20 years. And I was in foster care, I was also adopted. I also had lots of behavior issues as a child. I had a sister who was a year younger than me who's adopted, she had a lot of behavior issues as well. And 20 years ago, I just started thinking about things differently and seeing things differently. I've been a social worker and therapist for a long time. And when I talk about this topic, stress in the brain, I, that, can, that can seem like a pretty dull topic. But what I want you all to understand is that it underlies all the behavior problems that you're going to deal with. So when you, under, when you understand stress, and Bruce Perry says if you work with children, you should have a generalist understanding of the brain. If you have a generalist understanding of the brain, then it will change so many of the challenges that you may eventually encounter with your foster children. But here's an even more important thing. What I talk about in relationship to stress in the brain also applies to your brain. Mm. It applies to my brain. It applies to all of our parental brains. And that is the breakthrough. That is the breakthrough because what you're gonna to wanna to do is you're gonna to wanna to take the information and think about it in regards to your foster child or your adopted child or your biological child. But what I want you to do is I want, to take, I want you to take the information and I want you to first apply it to yourself. Because what I understood a long time ago is that when I can understand something within myself, I can more readily understand in others. When I can't see something in myself, it's really hard for me to see it in others. It becomes a blind spot. But if you can see the way this works within your own life, your own history, it will be transformative to your process as a parent. I'm just gonna say parent. Because what we wanna do is we wanna think differently about the children that we raise. But in order to think differently about the children that we raise, we have to think differently about how we were raised. So we don't have a lot of time, so I'm gonna go ahead and jump into this. You can follow me on Facebook. Actually, this is being streamed on, on Facebook right now at Post Institute. And I wanna say something to you even then before we start. When I say I've been doing this for 20 years, I mean I've been doing this for 20 years. Probably my first 10 years was nothing but a lot of research and study and reading and trial and error as a clinician. And I still work as, as a, like I'm right in homes every single day. When I'm not here, if I'm not lecturing, I'm working with families every single day. I've worked with families all over the world. And 
So I get hands-on experience. I get constant repetition. I get constant feedback, and I'm still studying. I'm still reading. Invest in your education. See, your pride training or your MAPS training or whatever they call that in New York is kind of like your college degree or like your high school diploma. Once you get it, it really means nothing. It's just a piece of paper. That training you received is crap. And it is, it is going to make you woefully inequipped, ill-equipped to parent these children. Because it hasn't really helped you understand the foundation, and that's what I'm going to do. So I want to encourage you, continue your education. Make it important. Don't just seek to be a successful foster parent. I had an opportunity to meet Cornell West. You guys know Cornell West. He's Brother West, a Harvard, Princeton professor. He's been around a long time. So I got to sit down with him, and I said, Brother West, what is it? To, to be successful, and I was, this was 20-something years ago. And he said, oh, you're, you're already successful. You're already successful. You know, everyone, everyone in here is successful. If you know this guy, he's, he's a genius, so he's kind of eccentric in his suit and big goatee. Everyone's eccentric. You know, everyone's already successful. Don't try to be successful. Try to be great. You want to be great. So don't just try to be a successful foster parent or adoptive parent. Be a great one. Be a great one. In order to be a great one, you have to study. You have to study, you have to learn, you have to continually reinforce what you are learning and what you are seeing. And if you'll do that, your life will begin to change. Because everything I talk about is a different paradigm. This is going to go contrary to the way you were raised. It's going to go contrary to the way society sees children. It's contrary to the way schools see children, the way mental health professionals see children. It's contrary to all that. It's a whole different paradigm. It's a whole different lens. And I say you have to see through a trauma lens. We don't look through a trauma lens. The trauma lens starts with us. See, so much of the information nowadays about being trauma-informed, you might even have been exposed to some trauma-informed literature. So the problem with that is that it starts by looking outside of you. Trauma starts inside of you, and this is so important. We've all been impacted by trauma. We've all been impacted by trauma. There's not a single person in here who has not experienced some traumatic event in their life. You are not, if you live in this world, you have experienced trauma, and I need you to understand that because that changes everything. Trauma is any stressful event, any stressful event which is prolonged, overwhelming, and unpredictable. And this is really why mental health is screwed up right now. The reason the mental health professional is so screwed up right now is because most therapists come out of school thinking that they are different from the people that they serve. And because they think they're different from the people that they serve, they don't do their own work. And because they don't do their own work, they're not thinking about the, the influence of their own experience on the people that they're serving. So we want to change that. Let's change that as foster parents and adoptive parents. Let's not continue that dysfunctional mental health trend. Let's change it by starting by looking at us. See, therapists, I hate working with therapists. Oh, gosh. They're so difficult, so defended all the time. <coughs> trauma is any stressful event which is prolonged, overwhelming, or unpredictable. And when that event continues on, that one event, could be one event, could be a series of events, when that one event continues on, unexpressed, unprocessed, and misunderstood, when you don't have an opportunity to talk about it, 
when you don't have an opportunity to, to feel it and cry about it and share it, and then when you don't have an opportunity to make sense of it, and sometimes you have to do that over and over and over again. Let me give you an example of that, just at a, at a, on a small scale. The last time you got pulled over by a highway patrolman, that was stressful. As soon as that highway patrolman let you go after giving you that ticket, what's the first thing that you did? You picked your phone up and you called your partner or your friend or your spouse or your mama. That's who I would call. And you say, guess what? I got a ticket. And she said, oh, I told you, no, you need to slow down. I'm always telling you to slow down. I know, but I, you know, I thought I was going to blah, blah, blah. And so as soon as I hang up with her, I'm going to call somebody else. And then if I'm not done, I'm going to call someone else. You know what we're doing? We're processing. We're expressing and we're processing and we're understanding something at that level of stress. I've got so many tickets, it ain't even stressful anymore. <laughs> I'm happy to see a police officer down there. Hey, how are you? But imagine... Imagine, now think about this for a moment, because some of you in here were foster children and some of you were adopted. But just think about those of you who had the loss of a parent early in life. Or maybe you had an alcoholic parent. Or maybe you had a parent who was a uh, war veteran, who came back from war, World War II or Vietnam with severe post-traumatic stress disorder, and you didn't even know it. Or what if you just had two parents if you're fortunate enough to grow up in a two-parent household, what if you just had two parents that just worked all the time to pay the bills and take care of things? And they came home, and every day looked like, like the next day. You played after school. You got called in to come eat, and then you played some more, and then it was time to take a bath. And if you got hurt, your parents said, dust it off, you're all right, keep going. But fundamentally, you were just living and existing. They were not emotionally present. Because when you're stressed out, you cannot be emotionally present. The emotional presence, the emotional absence and parental depression are the two most common forms of trauma in our society. You grow up as a child in a home with two parents who love you but they work really hard and they're just not emotionally tuned in. Not that they don't love you, but they're not emotionally tuned in. And so how many of us got to report bullying when we were kids in school? No, you just lived with it, right? You just figured it out one way or the other. Trauma. Loss of a parent, trauma. Domestic violence, trauma, and then we go on into the other traumas. Now, how many of you actually have an opportunity to express and process and understand that event or that series of events? You don't. You grow up with it. You learn to live with it. And I'm going to show you where it ends up being stored in your brain and why that is fundamentally the biggest challenge that we are encountering and dealing with day to day when it comes to parenting traumatized children. Think about all these events. These are all common traumatic events. You're familiar with these, right? Because you hear them a lot, especially if you work in this field. Abuse, neglect, adoption, foster care, the frequent moves. Just moving is a traumatic event. Moving is considered to be one of the top three most stressful things we encounter in life. Chronic pain, 
being in chronic pain all the time means you're in a chronic state of stress. Emotional absence and permanent depression. Now, what do these things have in common? They all occur in the context of human relationships. All of these things occur in the context of human relationships. Now, why is that important? It is fundamentally important. Because when you've experienced these events, they get stored in a part of your brain called the brainstem. The brainstem stores all of your memories. It stores all of your experiences. You never forget a memory. Now, you may think you forget, but it never goes away. It's always stored in the brainstem, the very base of your brain. Guess what happens when you get really stressed? Your brainstem opens up and releases those memories. So when you've experienced any of, any of these experiences, and many, many, many more, could be a car wreck. I remember I was lecturing in, in New Orleans at, a, at an addiction conference years ago, and I was talking about trauma. I was talking about it not being processed and, and expressed and understood. And a lady came up to me at break, and she said, oh, my God. You were telling us about trauma, and I realized why I have always been terrified of birds. She said, birds freak me out. She said, just the other day, I got in my car to go to work, and a bird flew down on the hood of my car, and I froze. And I said, bird, please get off of my car. She said, I could not move until that bird flew away. She said, you just helped me remember that when I was five years old, I was playing with my sister in the backyard and we had a chicken and that chicken was mean. And that chicken attacked us. And I have been terrified by birds ever since. This was a 40, 50 something year old woman. When we've experienced traumatic events, they get stored in the brainstem. And as we age, we get further away from the day-to-day -day communication and awareness of what's in our brain set. It's called unconscious. It's an unconscious memory. So you're not aware of it. You, you get, as you get older, you move more into your left hemisphere of your brain and less into your right hemisphere. Your right hemisphere is your emotional brain. So, so many of the challenges that we encounter day-to-day -day in relationships and so many of the issues that you're going to deal with with your children, the lying, the stealing, the defiance, the aggression, the self-mutilation, the doing inappropriate things, the, the social skills, the learning difficulties, these things come from the emotional brain. They don't come from the cognitive brain. See, if you were to make a big circle, and if you were to cut that into a pie chart, your thinking brain only makes up a fourth of your actual brain. The other three-fourths is all emotional. Your right hemisphere, which is connected to your brain stem, which is also connected to your gut, because there's neural circuitry that runs down the spinal cord into your gut, your right hemisphere dictates to your left hemisphere. Now, I really want you guys to understand this. In times of stress, our thinking becomes confused and distorted. And our short-term memory is suppressed. In times of stress, 
our thinking becomes confused and distorted. When you are stressed, now what is stress? What is stress? Stress is the encounter of any novel event. Any novel event. Getting here today was stressful. Now it may not have stressed you out, but it was stressful. See, we experience stress in one of two different ways. It's either regulated, meaning we operate within our window of tolerance, so we can focus, our thinking stays clear, we're able to engage, or we experience stress outside of our window of tolerance, which is referred to scientifically as dysregulation, affect dysregulation. Affect dysregulation is when you get stressed out. When you get stressed out, Research says that affect dysregulation is a fundamental mechanism involved in all psychiatric disorders. Affect dysregulation, being stressed out, is a fundamental mechanism involved in all psychiatric disorders. What that means, I'm going to make it real simple, is being stressed out is the fundamental cause of all psychological, emotional, behavioral, and physical problems. I just made that real simple. Being stressed out is the fundamental cause of all psychological, emotional, behavioral, and physical problems. Say it again. Being stressed out, being stressed out is the fundamental cause of all psychological, emotional, behavioral, and physical problems. I discovered this 20 years ago. 20 years ago. What that told me is that if there are extreme behaviors, then there must be, look at the person next to you and say extreme stress. Extreme stress. If there are extreme behaviors, there must be extreme stress. We're all smart people in here. Not only are we all smart people, we all have every answer we need to any problem we encounter right inside of us. Every answer is right inside of you. You already know the answer. But guess what takes you away from the answer? Stress. Because when you are stressed, your thinking becomes confused and distorted, and your short-term memory is suppressed. When you become stressed, you stop thinking clearly. And you don't remember. You forget that the way you just consequenced that child two hours ago didn't work. And that's why they're behaving that same way two hours later and you're giving them just another consequence. Now think about that for a moment. Now we got whipped when I was a kid. Did anyone ever get just one whipping? No. <laughs> I didn't, I got a whole bunch of whippings. And my daddy wasn't no joke, he worked in a rock quarry, so he was a strong, big, strong man. 
We got a lot of weapons. Mm. Now, if something works, guess what? You don't have to keep doing it. Right. You shouldn't have to keep doing it if it works. But if something induces stress, guess what? Your thinking's going to be confused and distorted, and your short-term memory's going to be suppressed, and you're not going to remember that the whipping yesterday didn't work. That's why the child's misbehaving today. And you're whipping them again today. Einstein said, Doing the same thing and expecting a different outcome is the definition of insanity. <laughs> what makes us insane? Stress. 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 We keep doing the same thing and expecting a different outcome because we don't realize we are stressed. Who starts it? Who's ultimately responsible for reducing the stress? Us or our little traumatized kids that we're raising? We are. We are. And if your parents didn't do it for you, then it's your responsibility to do it for yourself. And then to do it for your child. But let's look at it a little bit more from the brain so you'll understand it. The amygdala is the center of your brain responsible for fight, fight, or freeze. It's where all your cortisol, your original, your primary stress hormone in your brain originates from your amygdala. Your amygdala does not think. This is all part of the emotional brain. It doesn't think, it only reacts. It's always scanning the environment, looking for a threat. As soon as it senses an environment, you could get cold and it will reduce, it'll release cortisol. You could see someone you don't like and it'll release cortisol. You could see someone you like and it'll release cortisol. Just laughter releases cortisol. Food releases cortisol. See, stress is not always bad. You get sick, your body gets stressed in order to fight the sickness. Having to go somewhere new releases cortisol. Smelling something you like, smelling something you don't like, all releases cortisol. The amygdala doesn't think. It just reacts. And it comes online right after conception. It comes online between us that, that conception and birth period of time in utero. Your amygdala is online. So it is already learning in the environment what's scary and what's not. As early as the fourth week after conception, the fetus has the ability to hear. As early as the fourth week. How many of you remember being in your mama's tummy. <laughs> How many of you remember when you were the size of that baby? Could you stand up with, for just a moment? Yeah. Look at that sweet child. <laughs> we were all that child once upon a time. We were all that child once upon a time. Thank you. What was going on when your mother was pregnant with you? Mm. What was going on when your mom was pregnant with you? You don't have to know all the details, right? But you, you remember. You remember what was going on with mom and dad generally just because you've heard the stories. Right. You've heard the stories. Mm. What was going on with mom and dad when mom was pregnant with you during your first three to five years of life? 
starting from conception. As early as the second trimester, the fetus has the ability to process psychologically. Ooh. As early as the second trimester, before you ever come out of that womb, you are already a thinking, feeling being. And not only that, but your brainstem is storing those memories and experiences. And they're called pre-verbal memories. Memories before you have words to associate with them. They get stored as feelings. They get stored as emotion. And every single one of us has those experiences. What we know now is that your first conception of five years of your life establishes dominant blueprints for all of your future relationships. Your first conception to five years of life established blueprints for all of your dominant relationships. How is that so? Because your brain is storing those experiences in the brainstem. In the brainstem. And every time you in, engage and interact with someone, your brainstem is opening up just a little bit to give you what it does is it says, hmm, I look at this woman right here and immediately she reminds me of my Aunt Joanne. And my name is Joanne. And her name is Joanne. I didn't know that. I never <laughs> met this woman before. <laughs> she immediately reminds me of my Aunt Joanne. Now, how is that possible? It's because the energy of who she is, we communicate through vibrations. We have trillions of cells and they all vibrate. That's how we communicate. The energy of this woman is called nonverbal communication. Alan Shore says the core of the self, the core of who you are, is unconscious and nonverbal and lies in patterns of affect regulation, how you manage stress. So the stress that she sends off, the vibration she sends off, Vibrates with my brainstem. My brainstem opens up and says, Aunt Joanne. I love my Aunt Joanne. I love my Aunt Joanne. So I feel safe with this woman. And I've never met her before in my life. Mm -hmm. And your brainstem does that automatically over and over and over 100,000 times a day in every situation. That's amazing. Every situation. Now, when you've experienced trauma, this is, the, this is where it gets tricky. Yeah. When you've experienced trauma, is that trauma gets stored in that same area of the brainstem. When you've, ex when you've experienced trauma, it gets wrapped into those same experiences. So if I didn't care so much about my Aunt Joanne, and I saw this Joanne, I might get a little anxious. My heart, may, my heart rate might increase, my blood pressure might go up, my stomach might start to hurt a little bit. I might start to feel a little irritable, a little panicked. I might have to move on over here, not even, not even realizing it. And I, all of a sudden I look at Joanne over there and I'm like, why is she looking at me like that? <laughs> you know, I'm taught, I used to have feelings like that in a lecture. When I first started lecturing, I would always focus on the men who looked the unhappiest. Hmm. I would always focus on them. They were always threats because my dad was a threat. My dad loved me. My, my dad was a threat. My dad. <laughs> when you get whippings like I get, that wasn't love. That was fear. You're always talking about your children need to respect you. That's why you need to whip them and you know be strict with them. 
There is no respect in fear. Respect only is derived from love. Otherwise, it's just fear. So I used to do that until I realized that's what I was doing. When I finally realized that's what I was doing, I was able to calm that down to the point where I would then engage the meanest looking man in the room <laughs> to make him not a threat. Because otherwise, my brain saw him as a threat. When you've experienced trauma, all it takes is a vibration, a vibration, a vibration that is similar to a vibration you've experienced before. That's why your kids say, stop screaming at me, and you was basically whispering. That's why they say, why are you looking at me that way? And you're like, what? I was praying. <laughs> because that vibration mimics a vibration they've experienced attached to a memory in their brainstem. The more stressed we become, the more open the brainstem is and the deeper the memories get stirred. When we get really stressed, you are all in conception of five. You think you are 46 years old and having an adult interaction. You are not. You are a 46-year-old infant. And there's research that says some adults in times, in times of stress have the ability to revert to infancy. I don't want any of your mamas raising hands, pointing at your daddies. But you've all heard it, right? At your age, not your shoe size. <laughs> when we stress, we regress. In times of stress, we revert to our developmental zones of comfort. When you stress, you regress. You've heard about oppositional defiant children, right? You just think they're willfully disobedient. You think they're ignoring you. An oppositionally defiant child is a scared child. The moment you ask that child to do something, there is a vibration that gets turned on in their brain of threat and overwhelm, and they freeze. And they look at you like this. <coughs> but in your brain stem, you have countless experiences where your parents said, don't ignore me. Don't look at me like that. Do what I say to do when I tell you to do it. Now. Now. Right? Got hers right turned up. And so then what happens? Our brain stems clash. Right. The brain stem of my foster child, they're in stress and fear and overwhelm. Reliving, potentially reliving a traumatic experience. Our brain stem is in stress and control. It comes out as control. Why? Because our parents repeatedly said the same thing to us over and over and over again. So now we have an imprint, we have a brainstem imprint that says, you do what I tell you to do when I say to do it. And guess what happens? The child just freezes more. And then they, they, they explode in anger. And then they go break something. And you're like, my goodness, why can't you just do what I tell you to do? And that becomes a constant I call it a negative feedback loop. It becomes conditioned. Severe behaviors are conditioned. They are conditioned experiences. 
The reason your children have the behaviors they have is because they are conditioned. Because you're doing the same thing that you've always done, therefore they're doing the same thing they've always done. So nothing's changing. Children grow older, they don't grow better. That's the problem with the mental health system. The way the mental health system is today is we create more stress. And because we create more stress, children just get older, they don't get better. That's why given another diagnosis or given another medication is not the answer. Reducing stress is the answer. But when you can't see it within yourself, you can't see it in someone else. I've been doing it for 20 years. 20 years. I don't diagnose. I'm not into medication. I'm only into reducing stress. And when I work with families, I don't care how bad the child's behavior is. In fact, I get so excited. I mean, it's not as big of a deal anymore, but it used to be, especially when I first discovered the stress model, which I'm going to talk to you guys about. I get so excited when behaviors were really severe. Because I knew that severe behavior meant severe stress. And severe stress has got to be pretty easy to reduce. Now think about that. <clears throat> Severe behaviors mean severe stress. And if it's severe stress, then you only have to do a few things. A few really just simple things to start reducing the stress. And if you start reducing the stress, what's going to happen to the severe behavior? It's going to go down. And people are going to be like, how did you know that? Oh, my gosh. That's the secret. The secret is severe stress means severe behavior in every situation. You want to reduce the behavior, reduce the stress. You want to reduce the behavior, start reducing your stress first. So when I work with families, I always start with the parents. Always. And most of the time, I don't even work with the kids. I don't even like kids. I like kids. If I can reduce the parent's stress and I can help them develop more awareness, they can start to see their children's stress. And as they can see their children's stress, they start addressing their children's stress and not their children's behaviors. See, if you're addressing the behavior, you're actually operating out of your amygdala. When you're focused on the behavior, it's because your amygdala is activated, because your amygdala is always looking for a threat. And when your amygdala sees a threat, it immediately starts releasing cortisol, which then turns on your brainstem, which then turns on those old blueprints that you've grown up with. And those old blueprints are hard to turn off. You guys will leave this room today and your kids gonna talk back or roll their eyes. You're gonna be like, boy, I'd knock your eyeballs in the back of your head. <laughs> My daddy never would have let me get away with something like that. You kids got problems these days. It's hard for us to calm our own stress. It's hard for us to even remember in those moments to calm our own stress. I tell parents all the time, sometimes the best thing for you to do is nothing. And I do mean nothing. Go set your butt down. Don't say nothing. Don't do nothing. Because sometimes doing nothing is doing everything. 
Because doing nothing means you are taking the time and making the effort to calm yourself down. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important on many levels. But let me tell you why it's fundamentally important. If your child is stressed out and misbehaving, and you get stressed out, and you are inclined to want to misbehave, <laughs> by doing nothing but calming yourself down, what you're actually doing in the moment is giving your child's brainstem a new experience. Because see, in that moment, when you get stressed, your child is expecting you to do exactly what they've already experienced. Your child is expecting you, we're talking about foster children, adopted children, your child's expecting you to abuse. They're expecting you to deprive them. They're expecting you to perpetrate on them. They're expecting you to kick them out. They're expecting you to burn them. They're expecting the worst because that's what they've experienced. And that has nothing to do with you. It's what they've experienced. So when your brainstem gets activated and you move into a state of stress because you have all these blueprints and sometimes you've got your own trauma that also gets turned on in the presence of their vibration. When your brainstem shows up and then you do what you do, what you're eventually doing is you're reinforcing their trauma pathway. When they're stressed and you get stressed, you're reinforcing their trauma pathway and that's the problem. And the challenge, the problem is we keep reinforcing these children's trauma pathways because we keep following our own trauma pathways. The problem and the challenge is that we've got to create new pathways for these children. We've got to give them new repetitions. So when you literally, literally, when you do nothing, and I want all of you to try this today, because you, you're all going to get a chance. <laughs> Why are you going to get a chance? Why are you going to get a chance? You're going to get a chance because, because your children are stress sensitive. They are stress sensitive and they're fearful. All of your children are stress sensitive and they're fearful. And just the fact that you've been here is stressful to them. When you come back, they're immediately going to escalate. Because stress and excitement, fear and excitement come from the same part of the brain, the amygdala. So they're immediately going to escalate just because you've been gone. Some of your children don't think you're coming back. Now, some of you may have said, I ain't coming back. <laughs> Right, but see, we can do that, and it's funny to say it, but in truth, some of your children, that is a reality. Right now, they are living in terror that you may not come back. Thank God it's Saturday, because had it been Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday or Friday, and then they had to go to school, they would be expected to learn in that state. And they can't do it. Because when you're stressed, your thinking becomes confused and distorted and your short-term memory is suppressed. See, I don't get real complicated. I don't get, I get, it's got real simple. Usually if I ask you a question, the answer is stress or fear or love. That's the answer. That's the answer. When your child gets stressed, it turns on your own brainstem. Turns on your own brainstem. So this cortisol passes to the pituitary gland to a past the structure called the hypothalamus. This is where healing happens. 
When cortisol passes the hypothalamus, the hypothalamus is signaled to release a hormone called oxytocin. Oxytocin is your brain's anti-stress hormone. So cortisol is your brain's primary stress hormone. Oxytocin is your brain's primary anti-stress hormone. So when you get stressed, your brain also signals, gives a counter signal to release oxytocin, which is what helps calm you down. So when you actually do nothing in the presence of your child's negative behavior and make space for you to calm down, you're actually turning on your oxytocin response. When you start turning on your oxytocin response, you start sig signaling oxytocin to your child. Now, here's what you got to understand about oxytocin. Oxytocin is a learned response in the brain. It is a learned response in the brain. You have to learn it. Some adult has to teach it to you, and it starts in utero. For a lot of foster children, for a lot of adopted children, for a lot of individuals, when we were in utero, our mothers were stressed out and our fathers were stressing them out. Mm. So cortisol is what we learn. That's what gets imprinted in our brainstem. Now, some of us had the good fortune to grow up in a womb where the mother was actually relaxed and calm and felt loved. And because she was relaxed and calm and felt loved, she turned on a lot of oxytocin. And so then the baby gets to relax. It was 37 years before I met my biological mother. And one of the first questions I asked her when we had time to sit down and, and do some therapy together was, tell me about how you felt when you were pregnant with me. Because my sense had been that I'd always felt really good in utero. In fact, that that was probably birth was my single biggest traumatic experience because I knew I was gonna go out into a world and she was gonna be gone. And she said, I loved being pregnant. I actually had, a, I have a brother who's a year older than me, a sister, unfortunately she just passed away two years ago, she, three years ago, she was two years older, and then I have an older brother who's three years older. So we were all back to back to back, I was the youngest. But my mother got pregnant by someone who was not their father. And she's, who, yeah, yeah, not their father. She said, I always loved being pregnant. She said, I always ate lots of salmon with you. I didn't smoke. I didn't, didn't drink. And I knew that. I just felt it. And she, I said, How, when, when was it that you knew you were going to have to let me go? She said, when I, at seven months. At seven months, I knew I was going to have to stop thinking about you. So I did. I tried to forget you were even there. Wow. Because she was supposed to have aborted me. But she was still married to her husband. So she was supposed to have aborted me. 37 years later, when I found this woman, she's still married to her husband, who's a lovely man. She said, let me call you back. She said, I'll call you back tomorrow. She's like, who is this? She's a feisty little woman. She said, I'll call you back. She called me back 30 minutes later. She said, you're right, baby. I'm your mom. I just had to tell my husband. He didn't know. 37 years, the only people who knew I was alive was her and her older sister, Mom Gloria. Oh, wow. So she carried me in a womb that was more or less nurturing. And it helped my brain. It shielded my brain from a lot of stress. My adopted sister, 
was exposed to alcohol, maybe drugs. She was premature. She was in an incubator for three months. She weighed, weighed less than three pounds. Her experience was completely different. Completely different. So we learn oxytocin. We learn how to turn on oxytocin from very early stages. And so these children that you're raising right now, many of them have not learned how to turn on oxytocin in the presence of stress. Their brains have not learned how to trigger their anti-stress hormone. So when they get stressed, guess what? That's all they've got is stress. And then what do we do? We get stressed out with them. And then we punish or we yell or we fuss, or we holler, we threaten, we create more stress. So guess what they're not learning? Oxytocin. You learn oxytocin and your brain is always capable of learning increasing levels of oxytocin. You learn oxytocin through being held. The mom out there holding the baby, feeding the baby, making eye contact with the baby, smiling at the baby, nursing the baby, sleeping with the baby, picking the baby up when the baby cries, seeing into the baby. All of those are experiences of teaching oxytocin. Now think about some of the experiences that these children you're raising have had. Anything even remotely close? No. And then very few of you have children who've only been in one foster placement. So not only have they had negative in utero experiences and, and, and experienced more cortisol than oxytocin, they've had multiple foster home placements and sometimes multiple adoptive placements. And then our answer to that, our answer is to diagnose them and medicate them. Instead of calming down, learning how to calm yourself down and stop being so stressed out by these behaviors that ain't gonna kill you. But your brain says these behaviors are gonna kill you. Your amygdala, when your child is misbehaving, doesn't matter what the behavior is, your amygdala says you are at risk for survival. You say, I'm gonna die if I don't get this child to stop lying. I'm gonna die if I can't get this kid, if I can't, boy, if I can't get you to tie your shoes, I am gonna die. If I can't get you to eat them peas, I am gonna die. If I can't get you to stop rolling your eyes, I am as good as dead. And we act like it too. Have you ever seen an adult just go ape shit over some little behavior a kid has? Like the kid falling out in the floor? Oh my goodness! You swear that adult's gonna have a heart attack. What red fox on San Francisco? I'm coming! I'm coming! That's what your brain does. Sir. Your brain does that to you because you have many, many, many experiences from your parents and your grandparents and society that says you're gonna get in trouble. That's why you get stressed out. You get stressed out because you think you're gonna get in trouble. And from some of us, when we got in trouble as kids, we thought we was gonna die. 
Man, I had many experiences thinking I was going to die. So you think you're going to die, so you get worked up. But that's why two people don't experience the same behavior the same. And it happens right now in your home. You can have a child misbehaving, and one adult is losing their mind, and the other adult is looking at the one losing their mind, thinking, what is wrong with you? Dang, he's just scratching his balls, and he's just the world. In public? Right? Just, yeah, in public. Yeah. In public. Oh. He's scratching his little balls in public. Ain't nobody gonna die. Really? Ain't nobody gonna die. Really? You sure? I'm positive no one's gonna die. <laughs> okay, I take your word for it. Yeah, that's serious right there. I'm positive no one's gonna uh. die. But see, what we want to do is act. We Christine, feel like we're going to die, so we're like, you got to stop that. Stop that. This ass. Stop that. Stop that. When in fact, the one thing we don't do that we have to start doing is we have to ask ourselves in that moment of stress, what is it about that that's stressing me out so much? See, that's what we don't do. It's that simple. It's that simple. Just stop and say, what is it about that that's stressing me out so much? When, when have I ever felt this way before? Because the other person could walk over to that little five-year-old and say, hey, mama, let's not do that. Let's go to the bathroom if we need to scratch. You itching? We need to take a bath. <laughs> okay? <laughs> and then you'd be done. But the other dog wants to punish and consequence and threaten and shame. Because in times of stress, our thinking becomes confused and distorted and our short-term memory is suppressed. When we become stressed, we can't think clearly and we can't remember. So if he's doing this inappropriate behavior, which is not even inappropriate, he's five years old, depends on what his history is. He may have been sexually abused. Not inappropriate at all. It's not inappropriate at all. These behaviors are not inappropriate at all. There's nothing, there's nothing inappropriate about any of these behaviors your children are demonstrating. It's all they know to do. Right. Until they've been taught something different. Let's look at this. And this is how it happens. Just bear with me for a minute. Write it down. Write it, write it down and I'll get back to it. We all have three pathways through which we express emotions. Emotion is energy and motion. Attitudes, feelings, and behaviors. When you were a child, could you roll your eyes at your parents? Nope. Absolutely. No. So attitudes get, get suppressed. Why do we have these pathways? We have these pathways because they help us transition. We have to exchange and transition through energy. That's how we, that's how we make any transition. And what's one of the biggest challenges your foster children, your adopted children have? Transitions. Mm. That's why they don't get up so easy. That's why they don't go to school so easy or put their shoes on so easy or come to the dinner table so easy or turn off the electronics so easy because transition is difficult in their brains. And so when, they were, when, when we were little, you couldn't roll your eyes. If you can't roll your eyes, you can't express attitudes. What about feelings? How many of you could talk back to your parents? Mm. Yeah. No, didn't even think about it, right? Yeah, you knew you wanted your head. Or a hand or a foot or something was gonna go was gonna go missing. So you didn't do it. 
So attitudes and feelings get suppressed. If attitudes and feelings get suppressed, you go down to behaviors. How many of you can misbehave and get away with it? No, but you did anyway. Of course. Usually when your parents weren't looking, right? Mm -hmm. Because behaviors are not okay either. But if you can't express your attitudes, feelings, or behaviors, guess what you're left with? Anger and depression. Anger and depression have to come out through behaviors. If you experience anger, depression, and behaviors for six months or longer, I call that the trauma triangle. You are living in a state of trauma. You are living in a state of trauma. Some of you are on the verge of living in a traumatic level of stress just every day trying to parent your foster child. Every day. Because we don't have any other pathway for expression. The reason attitudes are not okay and the reason, the reason feelings are not okay is because we have cultural imprints that say if you express attitudes or feelings, you might die. Anyone ever heard of post-traumatic slave syndrome? Post-traumatic slave syndrome. What would happen to a slave if they rolled their eyes at the master? Lose an eye. What happened to a slave? We talked back to the master. Get beat. Get whipped. What happened to a slave? Try to run away. Get your foot cut off. These manner, these mechanisms, and the manner in which we have learned to deal with behaviors are generational in nature. They are generational in nature, and they impact all of us. So we suppress attitudes and feelings, and then we get to behaviors. And then you have these children who've been traumatized. They've been traumatized, so they have not even learned how to release oxytocin in the presence of stress. All they know is stress. All they know is behaviors. They're conditioned for behaviors. So we get stressed out with the behaviors. We condition them towards more behaviors. The behaviors don't change. They just transform into some other kind of behavior. That's how we don't heal. We don't heal because we grow up in environments so where all we do is keep reinforcing the behavior. I mean, this is where disrupted foster home placements come from. It's where disruptive adopter placements come from. It's where you get medication. It's where you get diagnosis. It's where you get restraint. It's where you get residential treatment. You get all of those at that level of the trauma triangle because a child doesn't know anything else except behavior. And we don't know anything else but to try to suppress the behavior. I'll say that again. The child doesn't know anything else except behavior, and the only thing we are doing, and the only thing we know to do, is to suppress the behavior. So what happens is we just keep reinforcing the behavior. We just keep reinforcing the behavior. We have to do something different, and at a very basic level, it becomes making attitudes and feelings okay. No one's going to die. No one's going to die if a child has their attitudes or has their feelings. No one's going to die. What's going to happen is that the child learns that attitudes and feelings are actually okay. And when a child learns that attitudes and feelings are okay, guess what they don't have to have? Behaviors. But the, the only way we even begin that process if, is if we can stop feeling like we're going to die if a child has attitudes and feelings. The same with behaviors. Right now, your children are conditioned for behaviors. 
They're conditioned for behaviors. They have to be in those behaviors. You have to get okay with those behaviors one way or another because you have to do something. Now this is where it's challenging because their behaviors do three things. When a child's misbehaving, it makes you want to control, suppress, or change. Anytime you are geared towards control, suppress, or change, you are stressed because that's what the amygdala does. The amygdala wants to control, suppress, or change. So anytime you are stressed and you're parenting from a perspective of control, suppressing, or changing behaviors, it's because you're stressed. Now this becomes so challenging is because these children have all these behaviors that constantly activate your brainstem and your amygdala that make you want to control, suppress, and change. So you keep sending a stress vibration to them. You've got to get, you may not like it. You may not like it, but you've got to get comfortable in the midst of the anxiety that you experience when that child is misbehaving. Or you don't. You can keep punishing the behavior. You can keep going down that path. You can increase the medication. You can take him and get another diagnosis. You can create another point reward chart. You can do another consequence. You can give him another spanking. You can yell some more. You can take more stuff out of his room. You can just keep doing that, going down that path as long as you need to until you get to the point. Sometimes, not all the time do we do this. A lot of times we don't get to the point where we say, Lord, have mercy, I must, have to, I must need to do something different. A lot of times we get to the point and say, oh, this child is broken. Sweet Jesus, this child is the spawn of Satan. <laughs> Somebody else gonna have to raise this baby. I can't raise this baby no more. Because whatever I'm doing ain't working with this baby. Somebody else needs to raise this baby. And 26 foster home placements later, we just leave them in residential treatment. Because we're not willing to just stop, take a deep breath, and say, Maybe I don't have to parent the way my parents parented me, or the way I parented my biological children, or the way my grandparents parented my parents, or the way slave masters dealt with the slaves. Maybe I don't have to just keep doing that. Maybe I, maybe I really could stop and say, what would Jesus do? Oh, Lord, don't let me get religious up in here. Because I will. Because perfect love casts out all fear. Perfect love casts out all fear, and there's only two primary emotions. There are only two primary emotions, love and fear. And this is why I discovered 20 years ago. The stress model says all behavior arises from a state of stress. Can I have a time check? 1014, you're doing good. Okay. Okay. The stress model says all behavior arises from a state of stress. All behavior arises from a state of stress. In between the behavior and the stress is the presence of a primary emotion. There are only two primary emotions, love and fear. It's through the expression, the processing, and the understanding of the fear that we calm the stress and diminish the behavior. So what I learned a long time ago is that when there is behavior, there is stress. <clears throat> this is a very simple, very simple model. I've been using this model for 20 years. I wrote my doctoral dissertation over this model in 1999. 
1999, and it hasn't changed. It's just, it's just gotten more finessed, deeper. All behavior arises from a state of stress. Right now, any behavior problem you are dealing with is arising from a state of stress. And that stress triggers a primary emotion, love or fear. Usually if it's negative behavior, it's coming from fear. Fear and stress are interchangeable. The moment you become stressed, your body constricts into survival. The moment you become stressed, your body constricts into an energy of fear. Your body only knows two energetic states, a thriving state and a survival state. Your body only knows surviving or thriving. Your body only knows love or fear. Your brain is what creates all these feelings. Your brain perceives an emotion, an energy, an energy, and calls it a feeling. Anger, sadness, depression, all those other stuff. But really all, all arises from love or fear. When you're operating in fear, there's no love present. <laughs> Most of us that grew up in loving homes grew up in loving homes that was actually fear disguised as love. Mm. And so we get confused now. We do things to our children under the auspices of that being love, and it's not love at all, it's fear. Right. You're scared. You're scared, and sometimes it's not that you're scared like, oh, like a shaking chihuahua, it's that you're scared because you're stressed. See, that's the first, that's the first level of understanding we have to have, is when we get stressed, we move into survival. And when we move into survival, we generate an energy, a fearful energy, and that energy drives our behavior. So this model is interactive because when the child is operating from behavior arises from stress, arising from their fear, it triggers stress in us, which drives our behavior. Drives our fear, drives our behavior. So what I have to do is I have to understand first the fear within myself. And I've gotta calm myself down. Take three to 10 deep breaths, just as a start. Maybe just, just move a little bit away from the situation. Maybe just stop. Maybe just put your hand down. Maybe go take a value, smoke a joint, take a drink. I don't know. Whatever works for you. <laughs> Calm down. Eat some ice cream. Yes. Oh. That's the one. That's the one. Calm yourself down. And then here's what's going to happen. The moment you calm yourself down. The moment you calm yourself down. You're turning on oxytocin. And the moment you start turning on oxytocin, your thinking comes online. Your short-term memory starts to show up again. And then you're looking at that child, and they're, in that mis and they're in that misbehavior. Child is misbehaving. You start calming yourself down, the child is going to do what? Start looking at you and wonder why you're not misbehaving. Because they're conditioned. They're expecting. See, when they get stressed, they're expecting something bad to happen. When you don't do that bad thing, it just changes the circuitry. See, that's planting a seed. That's one repetition. One repetition of what will have to be many repetitions. But just then, you gave them, and I like to say it's like, if you walk out in your backyard and you walk across the yard and walk back, you can kind of see the, the footprints where you went. That's the start, that's what that little seed does. It just walks across the yard in your brain. You're gonna to have to walk across that yard many, 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 many times in order for it to become a warm pathway, aren't you? Because your brain, your amygdala, it doesn't turn off pathways. 
it learns new pathways. That's how we heal. We don't heal by forgetting. We heal by learning something new. It's very important. We don't heal by forgetting. We never forget anything. Every experience you've ever had, it stays there. It's there. You gotta come to, to be aware of it. You gotta come to understand it. You gotta come to accept it. You gotta come to forgive it. You gotta come to grieve it. Whatever you need to do. But you gotta get okay with it. The more okay with it, the more aware of it you become, the less impact it has on you. The less impact it has on you, the less stress you get. When you can calm yourself down, you shift from fear over to love. Now you're in a state of love. And sometimes love is just doing nothing. We all know how to be loving. We all know how to be loving. And sometimes we get confused because some of these behaviors are so strange, they're so weird, so different from anything we've experienced. Here's what I'm going to tell you. And you're going to find it's hard to believe that I'm going to make this statement. Every single one of you is enough. You are enough to create healing for these children if you are willing to go through the fire with them. Because their brains are on fire. And their brains are going to relive those experiences until they don't have to relive them anymore. And because their brains got to relive those experiences, that means you're going to have to relive some experiences. You're going to have to relive some experiences. You're going to have to ask yourself, why am I so stressed out about this right now? Because getting stressed out about it isn't going to create more healing. It just fosters the pain. It just fosters the fear. All behavior arises from a state of stress. From a state of stress. Calm your own stress, calm your own fear, move over to a loving place, and then operate and respond from that place. You can simply say, and this seems, this seems so contrary, it seems so, what I'm saying seems so contrary, because we are used to doing so much we're used to going so far over the top with children and their behaviors. I mean, when you are used to giving children consequences and you're used to spankings and you're used to yelling and you're used to taking stuff away and you're used <laughs> to everyone being mad and nobody getting dessert, ain't nobody going to get no dessert. <laughs> and then just being mad. When you are so used to that, and then I say... Really? If you calm yourself down, all you got to do is say, yo, you're going to be all right, man. That's actually enough. Oh, you are safe. You are safe. You're not going to die. I'm not going to hurt you. I'm not going to hurt you. Dude, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm not the one. I'm not going to do that. When you're able to express that to a child in the midst of their fear of the worst thing that's ever happened to them is going to happen again, when you can say that to them, it changes and reroutes their brain. When a child is in the midst of lying, and you know they're lying, and you know how your mom and daddy used to feel about lying, and you want to strangle that little kid, Got chocolate all over their mouth, talking about, I didn't eat the cookie. And you was looking for that cookie all day. 
All day he was looking for that cookie. Get home, cookie gone. Crumbs. And the rapper's still even on the counter. Chocolate all over the kid's mouth, chocolate all over the teeth. I didn't eat it. Man, you just want to snatch them up. Woo! But when you can stop a minute in the midst of that, you can take a deep breath, and you can say to that child, you know what? We're going to be okay. We're going to be okay. And then you walk away. And then you come back later. And I call it ignoring the behavior. Don't ignore the child. You come back later and you say, you know what, buddy? I really love you. I care about you. You're going to be here with me for a long time. When you tell me a lie, it makes me feel scared. It makes me feel like you don't trust me. And if you don't trust me, I can't keep you safe. You notice I said when you... When you tell me a lie, I didn't say not tell me the truth that you really need to cook it. <laughs> I didn't say that. I didn't say when you lied. I said when you tell me a lie, and when you say to a child when you tell me a lie, they immediately start thinking, which one are they talking about? <laughs> <laughs> this one or the one yesterday? Yeah, this one or the one yesterday, just, you know, just five minutes ago. <laughs> when you say when you tell me a lie, it hurts me, it makes me feel sad, it scares me. All of a sudden, their amygdala calms down. Their amygdala calms down, and their brainstem, with all those, with all those experiences, those painful experiences, gets a little smaller. The vibration gets a little less. And then when that happens, all of a sudden, their thinking comes back online. When their thinking comes back online, their short-term memory all of a sudden turns on again. So now they can remember. Now they are in an effective learning environment. When a child is in an effective learning environment, now they can actually learn. So when you calm yourself down and you say to that child, when you tell me a lie, it scares me, what you're doing is you're teaching that child's brain, you're planting a seed in that moment, in that child's brain, that when the next time Bruce Perry says, anytime we encounter, uh, any, anytime the brain encounters a novel event, it goes back to the way it was handled the last time. Anytime the brain encounters a novel event, it goes back to the way it was handled the last time. Anytime it encounters a stressful event, it goes back to the way it was handled the last time. Always returns to the way it was handled the last time. So when the child, next time, because the child is likely to take a cookie. Why is the child likely to take a cookie again? The child's likely to take a cookie. Let's say it's a 10-year-old child. Why is a 10-year-old child likely to take a cookie again? Because when they're stressed, when they're stressed, they are not thinking clearly. And their short-term memory is suppressed. When they are stressed, they are regressed. That child is not 10 years old anymore. That child is two. And that freaking cookie looked good, dadgummit. That cookie was placed there just for me. And I'm going to have that cookie. That's why they take the cookie. They take the cookie again, but this time they take the cookie. They eat the cookie. When you say, hey, honey, did you eat my cookie? They go. And they have two pathways. They have one pathway that's well-worn that says, I might die if I say, 
Yes, I did. I might die. And then they have this new, this new, these new footprints. Just footprints that say, last time this situation happened, I didn't die. Maybe I could tell the truth. And they may not be able to tell the truth that time. But if you'll keep practicing within three, three to five times, they'll tell the truth. And not only that, they won't eat the cookie. The reason they're not going to eat the cookie is because you're going to realize that they are stressed and they regress. And you're going to make a cookie for them. And you're going to say to the child, when you get stressed, if you need a cookie, here's your cookie. But don't eat daddy's cookie. Don't eat mama's cookie. This is your cookie, this is my cookie. And they're going to learn that. The definition of discipline is to teach, not to punish. The definition of discipline is to teach, not to punish. If you want children to learn, they have got to be put in effective learning environments. They have got to, their brain must be in a state of effective learning. If you want them to learn, you've got to help their brain get into an effective learning state. Means you have to reduce the stress so that their short-term memory can turn on. Well, what about when the Bible says, spare the rods for the child? Doesn't the Bible say we should beat these kids? Isn't that the problem today? Kids ain't getting beat enough. The rod and the staff were used in the raising of sheep by the shepherd. The staff was used to pull them back in the line when they strayed. The rod was used to guide them. Spare the rod, spoil the child means spare a child guidance. And they will be spoiled to the ways of the world. And when the child gets spoiled to the ways of the world, they run off. They run off and they get eaten. They get eaten by the coyotes and the wolves. Because what happens is the shepherd beats the sheep over the head with the rod. What happens when the shepherd beats the sheep with the rod? They run away. They don't trust him. And they get eaten by the coyotes and the wolves. The same thing that happens to our kids. And that's why relationship is so important. Relationship. We live in a society of behavior control. Behavior control. We want to control, suppress, or change behaviors. But what we've got to do is we've got to focus on the relationship. The relationship allows us to influence. The relationship allows us to influence. So I'm going to go back to little Tommy in the grocery store, scratching and scratching his little balls. Now when I say you have two choices, and, and either choice is okay. Either choice is okay. I don't judge you one way or the other. You do what you do and you get what you get. But instead of getting mad at little Tommy and shaming him, you can, number one, ask yourself what you get so worked up about. What is this really about? Or number two, you can just go over and say, hey, buddy, right here, if you're itching, we need to go to the bathroom. We gotta make sure we take a good shower tonight. And he says, okay. And then when you're taking a shower that night, Making sure he's getting clean, taking a bath, make sure he's getting all clean. You say, hey, when you're in school or when you're in public and you start to itch down there, oh, just ask to go to the bathroom. Because people see you itching, they be like, ooh, he gross. 
right? And he said, oh, okay. What did I do? I just created an effective learning environment. He can learn. If you smack his hand, if you shame him, if you pop him upside the head, if you take something away, if you threaten him, guess what you do? You just take him out of an effective learning environment. You just create more stress. You create more stress, you take the brain offline. You suppress the short-term memory. I'm making this real simple, right? It ain't, it, it, it's not easy. It's simple, but it's easy. The reason it's not easy is because you're going to get stressed. That's the biggest, that's the biggest struggle. Ma'am, you have a question? Um, yeah. I, you know, I see what you're saying about, and I, and I totally get it, you know, and I try to practice this as best I can. Um, but when you're talking about scratching balls in the grocery store, that's a little different than, like, full-on violent attacking. It's not, you know? it's not any different. We think it's different, but it's not. But in terms of how to like ignore something when you're being targeted. Okay, so so let's let's just let's think about this for a moment. I'm going to go back to all behavior arises from a state of stress. I'm going to start with your perception because that's that's where we got to start. Your perception, based on what you just said, is that you're being targeted. Now, how does that make you feel about that child? It makes you feel stressed the hell out is how it makes you I feel. I mean, I think I'm physically scared for my it, own it, person. Exactly. It makes you scared. The problem with the brain is that that fear doesn't just turn off. That fear becomes pervasive. So what I'm going to tell you is that, number one, that starts to create more challenges day to day in the relationship, and it just builds up. But number two, severe behavior is always predictable. So, and number three, and I'm going to start with number three. The first thing I got to ask you, and you don't have to answer, but I want you to think about, is what experience with violence have you had in your life before this child? Oh, for sure. I've been okay. triggered. Okay, yeah. so now we got PTSD. Yes. We, got, we have your own PTSD. Uh -huh. So if I was working with you, we would work on that. We would work on your experience and your emotion that your brain has stored which makes anyone prone to any level of aggression a threat in your life. Because when you feel threatened, and this is for all of you, when you feel threatened, when you feel stressed, you emotionally abandon the child. See, that's where emotional abandonment comes from. Yeah, like I slow down, slow down, take a deep breath. Take a deep breath. Just breathe. There's no threat here. There's no threat here. There's no threat here. I'm just going to share something with you. You don't have to take it. When we become stressed as parents, we can't see anything else except threat. And when we can't see anything except the threat, that's all we look for. You've got a child who's probably been physically abused. So you've got a child who gets stressed and looks for a threat. Now because your child gets stressed and looks for a threat, you get stressed and look for a threat. You're both a threat to one another. But because you're the parent, when your child 
when, when your child gets stressed, and because your brain is looking for a threat, you can't see the signals he's giving you before he escalates into violence. When she does, she, like, there are times when I see it coming, but there are times when it is literally out of the blue. It's, not, it's never out of the blue. And that's what I'm trying to help you understand. It looks out of the blue. Because when we are stressed, we can't see. When we become stressed, we become misattuned. We're just walking along and, and you put this here instead of here. And you get and what violence I'm, in response. So perhaps it was the walking along. So see, when we slow, when we slow down and we start thinking from an when we slow down and we calm ourselves down and our thinking's online, our short-term memory's activated, we can actually become more investigators. We can investigate. Where were we walking from? What was going on before we even started walking? Same thing we do every night. Same, okay, so that's perfect. That's perfect. If it's the same thing you're doing every day, then you need to do something different. But you can't do anything different if you keep looking for the threat. So here's what I'm going to tell you to do. Instead of doing the same thing every day, how old's a child? Seven. Seven. Before you do that same thing every day, I want you to get down on your knees. I want you to bring that child into you gently. I want you to give her a long hug. I want you to tell her how much you love her. I want you to kiss her face. She won't accept any affection. Then let's work on that. Ever. Let's work, let's work I on get it. violence when I try to get violence. Okay, now, see, now we just, now what we just did, what we just did is we just interrupted that thing happening because now we backed up, now we know where we need to work. Now we know where we need to work. She can't accept any affection now, right? That's you because she's been abused, yep. right? Because everything is a threat. And so now you've been becoming a threat for her. You, you've become a threat. So now we have to get you out of the position of being a threat, and we got to get you to a place of, of her being able to feel safe with you again. So the first thing you're going to do, the first thing you're going to do is you're going to say, Honey, I am so sorry. I am so sorry that you've gotten so, become so afraid of Mama, and Mama has become so afraid of you. When Mama was a little girl, I went through some of the same stuff you went through. And I know how scared you are, and I haven't seen it, and I've been scared too. We talk about it every day. We talk about, you know, kids need kisses and hugs to grow. Oh, you but didn't hear me. You didn't hear me, Mama. Mama, you didn't hear me. You didn't feel me. Come up here, let me give you a hug. Come, come on up here, let me give you a hug. Come on up here. Come up here. You already are there. <laughs> okay, so before I hug you, I'm gonna hug you first. <laughs> so you don't like to be hugged, you're my little seven-year-old girl. So we're not gonna hug. We're gonna sit and look at you. You know. I know you just want a mama that loves you. 
And I'm so sorry that you haven't had a mama that loves you yet. <clears throat> and I'm sorry I haven't been loving you the way you need to be loved. And I want to love you, baby. I want to love you. Mama doesn't want to be a threat. Mama knows what it feels like to feel scared. Are you feeling me? Now, is that a little bit different than saying babies need hugs and kisses every day? It's a little bit different, isn't it? Yeah. Because you got to get vulnerable. You got to get vulnerable first. When you get vulnerable, she can get vulnerable. She can't get vulnerable until you can. That's why you got to look at that pain and share it with her if you need to. That baby wants to be in your arms. You got nice arms. <laughs> <laughs> She wants to be in your arms. She wants to be loved. She wants to be held. But we get too scared. We have, we have blueprints and imprints that keep us from being able to be. That's what fear does. Fear makes you do the exact opposite of what you should do. It's the paradox. It makes you do the exact opposite. But that's where it's got to start. If you guys want to have breakthroughs with these children, which I assume you do, you got to get vulnerable. You gotta get vulnerable. You got pain. <clears throat> you got pain that has not been grieved. It has not been healed. And you got kids who have pain that has not been grieved. You gotta be able to grieve for their pain. Hang on, just a moment, they'll get a spiritual download. You have got to be able to grieve for their pain, but you can't grieve for their pain unless you can start grieving for your own. It doesn't make you weak. It makes you strong. When you can get emotional, and when you can cry, and when you can mourn, when you can weep, I'm talking, I'm not talking little tear, I'm talking ugly cry. Yeah. Ooh, face just messed up. To me, that's the most beautiful thing ever. When you can do that for yourself around any, any aspects of your pain, then what that does is it opens your heart up to the emotion. And when your heart opens up to emotion, you can take these children, my gosh, guys, these kids have been through hell. Y'all don't, you don't even know. You don't even know what these kids have been through. I mean, these are little kids. Little kids, they have been through some shit. If, if you had been through any part of what these kids have been through, you would be mad too. You'd be scared too. You'd be acting out too. They have been through some shit and you don't even know. You don't even know because you go through your training, you don't, get, you don't get to really know what these kids have been through, but just stop and think. Just stop and think. At the most basic level, these kids ain't with their parents no more. That's God, how horrible, how horrible. Some of you have lost parents. How horrible for a child not to be able to grow up with their parents. I mean, geez, it don't take a lot for us to just get a little vulnerable. We ain't gotta be so tough. <clears throat> Stop being so tough and start being strong. Being strong to emotion. Being okay with where you're at. That's how you open up the opportunity for a relationship with these children. When you open that up, things change. They change radically. Radically. And I, I just, 
I can't, I can't explain it to you enough because it is emotional. And this is, this is a part of what's so challenging about lecturing all the time. I've been lecturing for 20 years, is that a lecture is cognitive. Like mama can, she can't, mama can't feel me when I'm just talking. But when me and mama can get face to face, she feels my heart. She can feel me. That's the problem with emotion. Oh, I don't like Kleenex. <laughs> I say you don't use Kleenex for snot. Let <laughs> your tears come out. When your child can feel you, that's where the healing unravels. That's where the, the trauma in the brain starts to unravel. And that's where healing starts to occur. When they can feel you, when you get vulnerable, you can help them open up. And it can happen so fast. So fast. I've seen, I've seen parents do things with their children in, in instances that they hadn't got to in years. Just by doing something different. Oh, I was, um, so much of what you say I'm connecting with. Um, in addition to being a foster parent, I'm also a teacher, a high school teacher. And so I see at all different um, age levels connection between behavior and how it all comes from stress. Um, one of the things that I've learned in the four years I've been fostering is that you do have to get vulnerable. Um, you most importantly have to be able to forgive yourself when you're not being that for parent or for me teacher and learn from those experiences and try again. Yeah. Keep trying. Um, and that's not an easy thing especially like the generational thing. I was raised by a very strict <coughs> Dominican mom <laughs> mm -hmm. where you, you know, you're being spoken to and you weren't looking at her, you know, it was a big deal, you know, and a lot of our kids today, you know, they are taught the opposite. Literally. Don't look at me, so you know, put your eyes this is, down. This is important. And so you yeah. gotta, you have to kind of like be that investigator and pick up Every little clue can mean so much. And if you don't pick it up the first time, or the second time, or the third time, that was the big thing for me, was forgiving myself. Um, my daughter came to me at 11 months, nonverbal, didn't walk, was kept in a car seat for like 11 months. Yeah. So like she had all these things, and I was so focused on the physical part that it took me a long time. Like even now when she's four, she still has transitional um, issues, emotional, like she can't express. And sometimes the Dominican mom comes out and I'm just like, Sophia, I told you, okay, you hold on a second. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, take it a step back. Where is this coming from? Well, and let, me, let, me, let me speak to that too. You are all perfect for where you're at right now. She needed that Dominican mama to make her this Dominican mama, to make her strong, to make her courageous, to make her bold. Your parents have given you, it doesn't matter what you, what you went through, your parents have perfectly equipped you. It just doesn't mean we have to continue doing the same thing they did. You don't have, just because they equipped you, there's some things you can actually let go and start to, to break those generational right. chains and right. do something different. Mm -hmm. 
right? But that doesn't make your parents bad. It doesn't even make them wrong. They did what they did. They did the best they knew how to do in every situation. But we have a responsibility to elevate. We have a responsibility to get woke. We have a responsibility to do something different. When you know that fear is what's been created, we have a responsibility to be more loving, to truly be more loving. And so for me, it's never about, you know, saying my, my parents were bad and wrong, nothing like that. I love my parents. I'm thankful to God for them. It's my responsibility to do different in the next moments and the next moments with my own children. I remember the first time, I remember the first time my daughter, my oldest daughter is 24 years old. She's a social worker in Oklahoma City. Her and her mother one morning, we were bickering in the kitchen. I was in graduate school. I was in an apartment. I could still see her mama ironing the uh, ironing something. And Michaela came out. She was a little bitty, eighteen months, and she was you know she was feeling our stress, so she started peeing. And she was naked. You know, early in the morning, she naked, walking around naked. Bless you. I picked her up and I swat her on the butt. I said, "You don't pee on the floor." And I carried her in the bathroom. And I set her on the toilet. I said, pee goes in the potty. You don't pee on the floor. I was mad, but I wasn't mad at her. I was mad at her mama. And I'm standing there over, scowling. Because I would be whipping your child. For me, whipping my child, busting her on the butt, would be the most natural thing here. I've mean, I got whipped for as long as I, you know, until I got smart enough not to get caught. <laughs> yep. So it's the most normal, natural thing ever. And I'm standing there, and she's looking at me. And this one big old tear welled up in her eye and crested over her little fat cheek. And it just melted me. And I said, oh, honey. I got down on my knees in front of her. I said, Daddy is so sorry. Daddy will never hit you again. And I meant it. I was... 20 years old. The only thing I'd ever known was hitting. I didn't know how to do anything different, but I knew I wasn't going to do that. And I didn't. I didn't. And never have since. So even now I don't even consider it. I've got a 16 year old daughter too. She's never been hit. She didn't, she didn't get yelled at. <laughs> and I got the most loving, mature, Accelerated children, they're not spoiled. They're not bad. They're good girls. And I got an adopted son. He's 26, came to me when he was 15. He didn't want to talk. We had a group home. He came to stay in our group home. 15, he wasn't even talking. He was on Insure. He had a prescription for Insure because he wasn't eating. He's, he's from um, Honduras. He had a prescription for Insure because he wasn't, wouldn't eat. Mm. And the first day, I said, come on, let's go. Follow me, we went got in the truck. We went to the grocery store, and I said, get what you want to eat. He picked out eggs, bacon, corn tortillas, queso, and avocados. That's what he picked out. It's a steak one in Honduras. And he fixed his own, and he ate that every meal, sometimes twice a day, for about six months. That's all he ate. 
never never drank any, he wasn't gonna drink that insure anyway. <laughs> and he eventually started trying everything else. Now you know now he'll eat McDonald's out of house and home. Loves well, Big Mac. He's everything. But you just gotta see our children from where where they're at, not where we want them to be. That, that's not our responsibility. Your responsibility is not to raise these children where you think they need to be. Your responsibility is to raise these children in the most loving, understanding, compassionate way so that they can be where God wants them to be. And that's what will happen. It just it doesn't always feel safe. It feels scary when we do that. So I had a mom, two quick stories, and we're almost finished. I had a mom who had emailed me once, and she said, my daughter talks nonstop about everything. Just incessant chatter. What do I do about that? It plugs. Oh. I said, do you ever listen to her? She said, no. <laughs> so let's start by giving her 20 minutes of, of your attention, no TV, no magazines. Just focus on her and just let her talk to you, you know, when she gets home from school. So she emailed, she called me a couple weeks later. She didn't mention the chatter thing. She said, what about bath time? Every single night, when it's time to take a bath, I mention bath and she flips out. This is a nine-year-old, nine-year-old adopted child, 63-year-old adopted mom. She flips out, kicking and screaming, yelling, going crazy. So I usually just jump on her. I just jump on her, I hold her down until she calms down. Mm. And then we go into the bathroom, she sees the bathtub, she starts flipping out again. But this time she's gonna get in that tub whether she likes it or not. And I'm gonna get in there with her even if I got my clothes on. Water splishing, splashing everywhere. Mm -hmm. We get that bath done. Mom said it's so bad I don't even try to wash her hair. I take her to the hairdresser for that. She said that would just be too much. She said we get that bath done, water everywhere, we both fall out on the floor exhausted. And then she won't even go to bed. She said, what do I do about that? I said, well, here's what I want you to do. Because this is what I believe in. I believe in investigating. I believe that if you're having behavior problems right now, you've been had the behavior problems. So we just need to start looking at it differently. We don't need to do anything magical. We just need to look at it. Let's look at it with a different lens. So I said, do one thing for me. Next time you mention bath time, I want you to sit on the bed. I want you to take three to ten deep breaths, and I want you to just ask yourself how you're feeling. That's all I want you to do. I want to know how you're feeling in the moment when she's flipping out on the ground. And then I want you to call me back and let me know that. I don't want you to do anything else. That's all I want you to do. When she's flipping out, I want you to take some deep breaths, and I want you to ask yourself, how are you feeling? And then I want you to let me know that. See, piece by piece investigation. Piece by piece. We don't have to do it all piece by piece. She emailed me back. She said, well, that doesn't seem like very sound therapeutic advice. <laughs> okay, well, give it a shot. So she did. Four or five nights later, she called me. She said, you're never going to believe what happened. She said, I went in the bath, in, in my daughter's bedroom, told her it was time to take a bath. She started kicking and screaming just like she always does. But this time, instead of jumping on her, I sat, in the, I sat on the bed. She said, I felt like a fool sitting down on the bed while my daughter's flipping out on the floor. She said, but do you realize in less than 10 seconds, 
She completely stopped what she was doing, climbed up on my lap as if she needed a hug, realized that she didn't, and then she went and got in the bath. She said, that was too much for my old heart. <laughs> that was the beginning of the end of their bath time battles. Well, later, about six months later, I actually got to go work with this family. And came to find out when this little girl was picked up at three years old, she had lice so thick on her you could pick it off with your fingers. Mm. Mom, when mom was a little girl, she had an older sibling. And the older sibling, she said, used to scream and yell in her face, said she terrified her. So that was the dynamic. They were both operating in a PTSD cycle. The first thing I had to do was stop mom's dynamic. That's right. I had to stop mom from getting scared and jumping on this child. So I had it, mom heard this story in that, in that lecture. I was in Dallas and I was telling that story. And the mom, this, this mom, her name's Lanelia, she emailed me two weeks later. She said, I heard you tell the story, reminding me of my daughter. I have a daughter, both girls named Christina, both girls nine years old. I have a daughter and our daughter, I have a daughter, our daughter has problems taking a shower. She said every single night, it's a problem. It's been going on since she was five for four years. When I say, honey, it's time to take a shower, she rolls her eyes and she huffs and puffs and she doesn't want to do it and it's been going on since she was five years old. So I thought I'd do what you suggested. I went up, I was calm, I was breathing, and I said, honey, it's time to take a shower. And sure enough, she started talking back and rolling her eyes. But this time I said, if you need anything, I'll be right there. She said she went and actually got in the shower. But sure enough, she called me just like she always does. Mom, the water's too hot, it's too cold. I don't like this towel. I don't like this soap. Mom said it usually bugs the heck out of me. But this time I went in, I got what she needed. And I said, honey, if you need anything else, I'll be right here. And she just sat right there in the bathroom. Mom said, that was the best shower we have had in four years. So I thought I'd go for a home run. <laughs> Took my nine-year-old, we went to her bedroom, still had the towel wrapped around her. I sat on her bed, and she sat next to me. I put my arms around her. I said, honey, that is the best shower we have had in four years. What scares you so much about taking a shower? Mom said, what scares you so much about taking a shower? In four years, Mom had never said, what scares you so much about taking a shower? She said, my nine-year-old daughter looked at me and said, well, Mom, the guy who sexually molested me made me take a shower with him. Okay, Mom said, honey, you don't have to take a shower anymore. You can take a bath. And this was two weeks later. Mom said, my daughter gets in the bathtub so fast now, I hardly even know she's been in and out. Five minutes to overcome four years. Five minutes just by asking, what scares you so much? Fear is real. Fear is real. Your children have grown up with fearful experiences. We've grown up with fearful experiences. But love is stronger. Love is what heals. God bless each and every one of you. Thank you for what you do.